Did you like that Run Devil Run? That's good stuff. <laughs> that was good. I didn't know they could pull that off. I, I was waiting for that. They did an amazing job. Great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, it's great to see people here. We have more and more people coming back to Grace, which is great. And uh, one, one of the things about Grace that maybe you haven't been aware of, maybe, maybe, maybe so, is that we have a higher percentage of men at Grace than most churches, which we love that. And that's kind of in, in line with the series we're doing, Man Up. But also, that's, uh, that's why we're doing something like a fight club. And, and today, it seems like we have even more men than usual. I think that might have been because they were watching online last time and they thought that, was, that this was bacon behind me. And so they, oh, we got bacon. I'm there. I, I'm in. So I, I don't know about that. But, uh, but we're glad you're here. Tonight, I want to challenge every guy in here. Tonight, uh, we have a fight club it's, and you don't have to, to, to commit to doing it to come. If you, if you want to know more about what it is, it's a 10-week challenge that we do as men. I know a lot of you guys are busy, so this is designed to not take a lot of time. There's actually only three meetings, so if you come tonight, there's only one more meeting before graduation night, and that's in the middle. And, uh, and although maybe your squad might want to get together one other time, but that's, that's optional for you. And, uh, and a lot of you have questions about what it is. It's, it's things like there's uh, some physical challenges. You know, it's, it's read a chapter of Scripture at least a day and, and pray every day. It's just some stuff in all these different areas to challenge us as men. So we would love for you to come. Again, if you're, if you're thinking, I don't know if this is for me, you should come and check it out. We promise we won't make you do anything weird. You may see some weird stuff, but you won't, you won't have to do anything weird. But uh, we want you to be there, and you'll leave knowing more about what it is. And then whether you sign up or not, people won't even know. So just come, check it out. Why at 10 o'clock? Because we don't want to take time away from your families. We, we want to take time from your sleep. And so, you know, so we make the sacrifice. Our family doesn't make the sacrifice. You know, it's kind of the idea behind that. So think about that. Hope to see you 10 o'clock tonight. Uh, we'll have a great time together. And, and why would we do something like this? Well, I mentioned before there's a lot of men here at Grace, but there's also a lot of confusion, right, in our country, in our world, about gender, a lot of confusion. Uh, and we understand some people suffer some confusion uh, about gender. You know, we, we get that, understand that. But promoting that just causes more confusion. And uh, it, we see it all the time. We're just, you know, uh, President Biden signed a, an executive order. One of those many orders that he did, you know, involved allowing biological males to compete in women's sports. And uh, so that happened. And then here, uh, just Friday, uh, the Equality Act, the U.S. House passed the Equality Act, which has nothing to do with equality, but that also allows biological men to compete in women's sports. And, and by the way, that's, there's nothing equality about that. That's unequal to women. Women now have to compete with biological men for scholarships, it, it's just, it's messed up. I mean, we've had men's and women's sports for a long time. My grandmother, who was born in 1900, played on a woman's basketball team in her high school. Well, why, why, why was that? Because we've, all, we's, we've always recognized that in some physical sports, it's not fair to have women compete with men. So we've had 
sports for women. Now it's like we're undoing stuff like that. It's not really beneficial to anybody. It's a problem. But here's what's going on. And, and really, if you, want to, if you want to be honest about it, I didn't tell first service, but this is just really more and more, there are people who are trying to create more and more protected classes of people for political reasons is kind of what's going on here. But, but whatever, the, the, when, we, when we talk about men and masculinity, there are two huge uh, misconceptions, two false narratives that, uh, that have to do with men today. And the first one is this, it's a hyper masculinity, an exaggerated masculinity that sets up sexual conquest, uh, athletic prowess, or, or just power as the measure of a man. And, and that's, not, that's not what the Bible's saying. And the other false narrative is that, um, that there's no difference between men and women, that, that there's nothing distinct that men are called to, and that there's nothing distinct that women are called to. And uh, that's wrong. There's a lie that says distinction equals inequality. Distinction does not mean inequality. Distinction just means different. And difference between genders does not mean unequal. It just means different. And just talking like this probably sounds a little odd to us because of, of the cultural narrative that we live in today. The Bible says something else. And by the way, the Bible is offensive to every culture, whether traditional or liberal, ancient or modern, the Bible offends every culture because it's not from a culture, it's from outside of culture, from God, our creator. And God is telling us that he created male and female both in his image. The argument's not about equality. Men and women are equal, but also different. Equal in value, equal in worth, but different in design for God's purposes. That's what Scripture's teaching us. All right, so we started this series, um, Man Up. Tim kicked it off for us last week. He was in 2 Samuel, and he was talking about the time of David, if you'll remember, talking about his mighty men and the three, and then the 30 who didn't quite attain to the three, and then the other valiant warriors he had in his army that didn't attain to the 30, and he sort of challenged us, you know, all of us as men can step up a little bit, and all these men served David. And now, uh, this week, we're, we're Going forward with that, remember David was a man's man. David, in his youth, killed a bear, killed a lion, killed a giant warrior named Goliath. All that in his youth. Later in his life, he, you know, he was fierce in battle. He led, he, he was a mercenary for, for a while. People would give up, their, men would give up their lives for him, to follow him. But now I want to pick up in 1 Kings. And so now, David, Israel's greatest king, he's older and he's declining. I know this is hard for us to imagine in our day and age, but 
actually, you know, a, a national leader being older and in decline and people start, you know, that's how it was in ancient times. That would happen once in a while. But they're looking at David and they're realizing, hey, he's not, you know, what he used to be. And they first realize he can't get warm. He's got physical issues. And so they, they search around to find a young lady, a young nurse for David. And they, they find a lady, her name is Abishag. And Abishag is this beautiful young lady that comes in to nurse David, but also shares David's bed to keep him warm. And so David sort of brings her into his household as a concubine, something less than a wife, but all this time she remains a virgin. There's nothing sexual going on between them. And so they find somebody, they're, they're trying to help David, and, and, the, and everybody knows that David's not what he used to be, and it's apparent to the nation that David is going to die soon. And the huge question that's hanging over everyone is who's going to be our king? David's only the second king they've had. Samuel had anointed Saul, then Saul turned out to be not such a great king, and then Samuel anointed David, and then Saul was jealous of David and actually tried to kill David, but David wouldn't touch Saul, even when he had the ability, even when Saul was within his power, David hands off with Saul. But Saul was finally, uh, finally died, and then David took over, and now the question is, Well, who's next? Well, David's oldest son would be somebody that the the tribes and kingdoms around them would look to. And the oldest son, if you remember, was Amnon. And and I don't know if you understand that, remember the story, but there was actually an event. Amnon did something he shouldn't have done. And another son, Absalom, killed Amnon. So one brother killed another brother, half-brothers. One killed another. And then Absalom, later, he rebels against David. So while David's sitting on the throne years before this, Absalom got a lot of people sort of in his corner. He rebelled. He got an army together. He rebelled, and he took over Jerusalem, and David had to flee for his life from his own son. And that had happened, but, but then later, uh, and, and things were looking really dicey for David that he might be killed, but, but he survives and pretty soon he is able to take back the throne. In the middle of all that happening, there's a battle and Absalom is killed. Actually, David's commander, Joab, kills Absalom. And so, you know, that all happens. So Amnon's gone. Now Absalom is gone. And the next in line is a son named Adonijah. And Adonijah starts realizing that David is going to die. He's described as being handsome. He's described as being very political, politically ambitious. And so Adonijah starts setting himself up as king. The first thing he does, which is kind of weird to us, is he gets a motorcade together, what we would call. He gets some chariots He gets 50 men to run in front of him. And so he'd ride through Jerusalem in a line of chariots with 50 guys leading the way on foot. And that's Adonijah. Then, as David's health continued to decline, he actually holds a feast and invites in some key political allies. 
For example, he invites Joab, the commander of David's army. He invites a, a very powerful priest called Abiathar, and so he's there. And Adonijah invites all of his brothers, so they can get on the same page that, that he's next. And so they all come, but he doesn't invite one brother. As a matter of fact, here, here's what Scripture says in 1 Kings 1.10. But he did not, so Adonijah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, Beniah, who who's one of David's bodyguard, the mighty men that we talked about last week, and Solomon, his brother. So Adonijah invites all his brothers except for one, and it's kind of curious as to why not Solomon, because we haven't heard anything about him being king, but apparently David knew that God wanted Solomon to be the next king. But Solomon's like 10th in line regarding brothers. I mean, David has like 20 sons, and Solomon's like 10th. And, but David knows that Solomon's one. Well, apparently Adonijah catches wind of this, so he doesn't invite Solomon to his party. Now this, his party, his feast, his celebration is outside the city gates of Jerusalem. And he invites in all these key allies. He makes sacrifices and everybody knows that he's there solidifying his power to take over the kingdom when David dies. But, he, but it's significant that Scripture's telling us who he doesn't invite because that's not only Solomon. He also did not invite, as I said, Nathan or another priest called Zadok, nor Benaiah, head of David's bodyguard, nor the mighty men. So they're all seen, Adonijah sees all of them as threats, enemies. Doesn't invite them to the party. Everybody gets what's going on. Now, so here's what happens next. Nathan, the prophet, he sees what's going on and he takes action. Now, Nathan is the same Nathan that earlier in David's life when he was king, if you remember, he committed a sin with Bathsheba. He sent his army out. He didn't go. He should have. He stayed back. He's killing time at the kingdom. He's, he's not busy. And then he notices a woman on another rooftop. Uh, she's bathing. And so he ends up calling. For, he thinks she's beautiful. He, he calls her in. They end up having a sexual relationship. Then she later finds out that she's pregnant. Now everybody's going to know. So then David arranges for her wife Uriah, who's one of his mighty men, to be killed in battle. You know, send Uriah out, pull back from him, let the enemy kill him kind of a deal. It's like murder. And David does. And then Nathan came to David after that all happened and confronted David very boldly, confronted the king about his sin. So this same Nathan sees what Adonijah is doing. He knows about the feast. He knows this is going to be a takeover. And so he comes up with a plan. And the first thing he does is he approaches Bathsheba, David's wife now. And he comes to Bathsheba and says, you see what's happening. Adonijah's taken over. Solomon wasn't invited. You're in serious danger. Your son Solomon is in serious danger. You need to go talk to David and tell him what's going on. So Bathsheba does what Nathan suggests. She goes into David and says, hey, here's what's happening. Adonijah is taking over and I 
and my son Solomon were in danger, were going to be executed, because in those days, a regime change usually involved a lot of heads rolling, and they see all this happening. As soon as she tells David this, then Nathan the prophet shows up and has an audience with David, and he confirms everything that she just said, and he asks, is it true, King David, that you have appointed that Adonijah will be king next because that's how he's acting and that's what he's telling everybody. And then David takes, takes action. David then calls, he has Nathan there and Bathsheba and he says, hey, um, get, uh, get some of these other guys to come in. Uh, he gets Benaiah, the head of, of his bodyguard. He gets another priest, Zadok, these people that weren't invited, and he realizes this is a dangerous hornet's nest of political treachery. This is super, super dangerous. And so he gets these guys together, and here's what he tells them. I want you to go out now, and I want you to get Solomon, and I want you, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, I want you to anoint Solomon as king. And I'm declaring that he's the next king. And so they, they get the, the royal mule, actually, that everybody knows is David, David's. And they parade Solomon through and the priest and the prophet. And he's got Benaiah, who, who's a, a bad dude, you know, in the a part of the 30, head of the bodyguard. And they go out and they anoint Solomon as king. In the meantime, the whole city sees what's happening and here all this time they've been wondering, who's going to be next? What's David going to do? Is there going to be a bloodbath? What's going to happen when David dies? And then they see that David has appointed Solomon to be king after him. He's anointed publicly. And the city breaks out in celebration. It's an uproar. Trumpets are blasting. People are yelling. Everybody's cheering. And at that same exact time, Adonijah's having his party. And people are just finishing dinner. And then all of a sudden they're saying, hey, what's all that noise? And then somebody comes in and tells them, uh, Solomon has just been anointed king of Israel. And Zadok was there and, uh, and Nathan was there and they've anointed him and King David has appointed him the king and, and all this. And then that party sort of ends pretty fast. You know, these people are like, gone. And so Solomon takes the throne. And, uh, and just before David dies, in a, kind of his last words, he calls Solomon in and he gives him a charge. And that's what we're looking at. That was a lot of buildup to get where we're at, right? Okay, here, here, so we're in 1 Kings chapter 2. And here's how it goes. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. He's just saying, I'm dying. And here's what he tells him. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. So David 
is dying, man after God's own heart, and he's telling his son, here's what you need to do. Be strong. It's the first thing. Be, he says, be strong, man up, and pursue God. But be strong first. And when he tells him, be strong, we know from biblical Hebrew, this, this word for strong, it's not talking primarily of physical strength. It's talking about something more than that. Emotional strength. Strength that you get from following God. It's really the same thing that Paul talked about at the end of his letter to Ephesians when he said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Both Paul and David are recognizing that for a man to be really strong, we need strength that comes not just from our inner selves, we need strength from outside of ourselves. We need a source of strength. And that is God. It comes from him. And we all need to be reminded of that. All of us as men. Because life doesn't go the way we expect it. And things can get hard. Marriages can get hard. So what's God calling us to do as men, he's calling us, hey, don't walk away. Marriage hard, don't walk away. Be strong. God wants you to make it better. God wants you, man, husband, to initiate. God wants you to take responsibility. Don't wait for her. You step up. You man up. Quit blaming others. Love self-sacrificially. God is telling us as men, lead. Lead in loving self-sacrificially. Lead by loving your wife in a self-sacrificing way, putting her needs ahead of her, your own. That's what God's challenging us as men. All of us. But he doesn't just say, be strong. The second thing he's telling them is basically man up. He says, show yourself a man or act like a man. He's saying, demonstrate your manhood. How do you do that? How do we act like a man? Take responsibility. Do the right thing. Stand up for what's right. That's what David's saying. It's the same thing Paul says. Same thing other writers of the Bible are telling us. Stand up, do the right thing. And so a lot of us as men, we would give each other this advice. Say, you want some advice? Do the hardest things first. Don't, and by doing that, you won't be tempted toward passivity. Minimize the temptation toward passivity by doing hard things, tough things. Start with those. Reject Passivity, men, especially spiritual passivity. And when we do this, when we act like men, what helps us is to be around other men who follow God. We need this. We need this. I think of the men that I've come in contact with here at Grace Community Church, here in our church family. Amazing men. 
You know, here at Grace, I've known men who landed at Normandy and fought all the way to the Battle of the Bulge. Amazing men. Men who strung wire on one of the bloodiest battles in the Pacific Theater on an unknown island called Peleliu behind uh, Japanese tanks, stringing communication wires, trying to hold it together on an island that nobody's even, even ever knows anything about. One of the bloodiest battles. Men who spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Men who have laid down their lives to protect our freedoms. Men who manned up. Men who've built world-class businesses from nothing here at Grace. Men who lead our community, who take risks, who provide jobs for other people. Men who pitched in the majors, run heavy equipment, climb water towers, build with their hands, put deals together, race dirt track. Young men in our church who farm their own land. Young men in our church who have created, carved out their own businesses. And most importantly, men who've turned their lives completely around. By knowing God. Men who've been faithful to their wives for 50, 60, 70 years. Men like that. Men who've shown themselves to be men when they face death. Men sitting right here who sacrifice for their families every single day. That's what God calls us to do. Men sitting here that do that every day, no acclaim, no pat on the back, no thank you, not held up by anybody. They just keep doing what God wants them to do. And we men need to be around men like that. Because we can do more better when we discipline ourselves to follow God. And we discipline ourselves better when we discipline ourselves together. So then David tells him how to be strong and how to man up. He says, how do you do that? He says, third thing, pursue God. It's the most important thing that David tells Solomon. Pursue God. It's his spiritual legacy. The, what we want most as fathers or as parents, is that our children would follow God. John says in 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than this than to hear my children, hear of my children walking in the truth. This, this is our job. It's our responsibility as men to teach our kids about God. That's on us men. How does it happen? We, we don't drift into that. We've got to make it happen. It can start right now. How? By pursuing God, who will give us the strength to be strong, to man up. And then David, 
He reminds Solomon that manhood, to be the men we're supposed to be, it requires obedience to God. We've got to pursue him. We've got to follow him. We've got to see his word and believe it. And we need men today like that. Men who will stand up for God's truth. Stand up for God's truth. We cannot let go of biblical truth in in favor of cultural trends or political correctness. We cannot do it. If we do, we have then no objective truth to help men and women around us. If we do that, we'd have no way, nothing for hurting marriages, nothing for broken families, nothing for fractured relationships, nothing for confused sexuality, nothing for broken people. It's God's word that points us in the right direction. It's God's word that makes sense out of life. And we need men who are pursue God by believing his word and living it out. Here, David's talking about the first five books, the law of Moses. That's all the Bible they had in the time of David. Now we're told all the Bible, that we apply it, we live it out, we believe it, we know it. It's what God wants from us. And guys, it doesn't happen automatically. We need to discipline ourselves to follow God. We need to take him at his word. We need to change our lives accordingly. We need to correct our direction. Of course, correction. We we need to look for moments where we can stop and say, yeah, I got to quit drifting. I need to make this happen. So here you have David, who is Israel's greatest king, and, and he had a heart for God. He followed God. But he also did some messed up stuff. He committed adultery, he arranged for Uriah to be killed. I already mentioned that. Yet God said David was a man after God's own heart. How can that be? How can David be so flawed, but yet God say, there's a man after my own heart, David? How, how can that be? Well, I think one of the ways that that is, is because David, he believed God's word. He believed God. And so when he would do something that was out of line with God's word and somebody would confront him, he always fessed up. He always took responsibility for his own sin. He always repented every single time. And so should we. That we admit our faults And by doing that and getting forgiveness from God, we can move on, just like David did. After saying, be strong and man up, and most importantly, pursue God, then David sort of challenges Solomon to take some action, really to do some hard things. And David just kind of has a, a frank discussion with Solomon says, hey, you need to take care of some business. You need to carry out some justice that I didn't deal with. Because you got a hornet's nest here 
and heads are going to roll and it's going to be a mess, you need to take some action. It's a dangerous time. And he's telling Solomon, carry out justice. And here's what he says. First of all, he tells him, you need to deal with Joab. All right, Joab had always been loyal to David, but not loyal to Solomon. He just, he's been planning with Adonijah. And so David reminds Solomon that, that Joab had done some bad things. He was commander of the army and loyal to David, but he also did things that David didn't want him to do. Like a couple of times, people were surrendering and going to unite their armies with David. And as they come under a white flag of truth and David accepted their surrender, Joab goes and kills the commanders that did that. Why? Because he felt insecure for his own position. Hey, I don't want these other commanders of these other armies joining us. They might take some of my power and has them killed. And so David reminds Solomon, hey, I never really took care of the wrong things that Joab did, but you're going to have to because right now Joab is a very, very powerful man who has set himself against you. So Solomon calls Benaiah, one of the mighty men, and Benaiah delivers justice and kills Joab. The next thing David says to Solomon, he says, hey, there's a man, uh, Barzilli. This guy was when Absalom ran me out of Jerusalem, and it looked bleak, and nobody thought I could survive, and I just had a small following, and the whole nation basically started following Absalom. Barzilli was some guy out in the country that took care of David and David's entourage and gave him food and sort of helped him to regroup, and then that led to David taking back his throne. And so David tells Solomon, hey, you need to do right by them. You need to always invite the sons of Barzilli into your table because they helped your father. And then he says, and there's another guy, Shimei. Shimei was a guy when David was run out of Jerusalem by Absalom and he's leaving with his little entourage of people and then Shimei's standing there by the brook Kidron throwing dust and dirt and rocks at David and mocking David and making fun of David publicly in front of everybody. And then when the tides turned and David got his throne back, and David marched back into Jerusalem, there's Shimei going, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I should have never done that. Forgive me, forgive me. And sort of in a moment of weakness, David says, all right, you're forgiven. I won't kill you. But now on his deathbed, he's telling Solomon, hey, you know, I said I wouldn't kill this guy, but this guy is, is bad news. I'm going to leave it up to you to figure out how to deal with him. But he needs justice. So Solomon, pretty smart guy, even before God made him super wise, he says, he calls Shimei in. Shimei's expecting to die, expecting Solomon to kill him, but Solomon doesn't. Solomon says, Here, here's what you need to do. You treated my father badly. You are confined to the city of Jerusalem. You cannot leave. If you leave, you die. And Shimei's like, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That's a great plan, Solomon. Thank you very much. And so it was for about three years. 
Then after three years, some things happened in his business. He had some servants that went to another town, didn't come back. And so then he went to get them. He left Jerusalem. And then he came back. And then Solomon heard about it. And Solomon called him in and said, what did I tell you? Justice. Benaiah takes care of Shimei. Benaiah's a bad dude. The next thing that Solomon needs to deal with is Adonijah. Now, David doesn't give him any advice on Adonijah. So when this all happens, when Adonijah's party breaks up, Adonijah flees to the tabernacle, and then they have this big square thing where they give sacrifices, and there's horns, kind of like a horn thing on each corner, and he grabs on to one of the corners and says, you know, he's right there at the beginning, at the front of the tabernacle saying, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. Because he knows what he's done. And so Solomon says, all right, bring him in. So they bring him in. And, Sol, and, and, and the guy's begging for his life. Don't kill me, don't kill me. And Solomon says, if you show yourself to be a worthy man, I'll let you live. And so that was that. Until a short time later, when Adonijah goes to Bathsheba, David, uh, Solomon's mother, David's former wife. He goes to Bathsheba which is a really stupid thing to do. He goes to Bathsheba and he says, you know, Bathsheba, all of Israel expected me to be king. They were all ready to take me as king. Everybody thought I was going to be king. Everybody liked the idea of me being king. Ah, but it didn't turn out that way. I have one favor for you to do for me. And Bathsheba said, what? She said, go, he said, go to your son Solomon and ask him to give me Abishag, Remember David's nurse that I told you about earlier? Ask him to give me Abishag as a wife. So Bathsheba does that. She goes to, to Solomon and says, hey, uh, I have a request for you. Could you give Abishag, David's other wife, who never slept with David in the sense that we know it, to Adonijah? And, and Solomon's like, hold it. Adonijah is already the eldest son living of David. So some people think he's the legitimate heir to the throne. Not only that, in the culture of the time, to have a former king's wife was another claim to the throne. If you had that king's harem, that was a claim to the throne. And so Solomon sees this for what it is. Oh, this is not about Abishag. This is about you having one more claim to the throne. And so he says, you have not shown yourself to be a worthy man. Benaniah, do your thing. Adonijah's killed. Justice is tough. It, it, it's weird because here's this regime change. Normally, hundreds, if not thousands of people would be killed. In three years' time, three people are killed. He tells the priest, quit being a priest and go live away from Jerusalem. Abiathar. Justice can be hard. And what we forget is God is a God of justice. God is a perfectly just God. And this isn't just bad news for Adonijah or Shimei. This is bad news for us. 
Because we've all done things against God. We've all violated God's commands. Every single one of us, we stand before God and justice demands that we be punished. And by the way, the punishment is way worse than we think it should be because we're all a bunch of sinners and so we don't see it as being all that bad. Yeah, that's bad. It's wrong, but it's not that bad. But God does not sin and he sees sin way more seriously than we do and he says... The penalty for sin is eternal. And so we all have a problem, but God used men like David and Solomon to make a way because he promised David that a king was coming, the greatest king. And this king would fight the greatest battle. And he would come and he would battle death. He would voluntarily give up his life and die for our sins. He's a king who didn't come to be served. He came to serve us and allow himself to be killed to pay the right penalty for my sin and your sin. And that's exactly what he did. But for us... To benefit from that, we have to come to God on his terms, and that is we have to humble ourselves. We have to admit our sin. We have to understand that we can only be forgiven through Christ, that he's the only way. And then when we do all that, when we've humbled ourselves that way, we will want to follow him. And that's what being a man is. Like all honest people, we admit our sins, we own up to them, and we ask God for forgiveness, and he, through the line of David, has made a way that he promised thousands and thousands of years ago, he has made a way for us to be forgiven without violating his justice because sin, our sin, my sin, your sin was paid for on the cross of Calvary, but it only benefits us if we humbly ask for forgiveness recognizing that Christ died for us. And if, and if that's sincere, we'll have a desire to follow him. Right now, I'd like everyone to stand. And this decision to admit your sin, follow Christ, it's the most important decision that you could ever make. And so as we close, I'm going to also include a prayer that that if you want to trust Christ today, if you are now, you get it, and you're like, I'm in, I'm trusting Christ, nothing else not doing good things. So we can't do enough good things to erase any of our sin. Well, I trust Christ. Father God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that we can all be here. And God, all of us are in the same boat. We've all sinned against you, but you love us anyway. And you made a way at great personal cost to you by allowing your son Jesus to voluntarily die for our sins, die in payment for what we've done wrong. Thank you, Lord. And Father, if there's any here that have never solidified that relationship with you, never cast themselves at your mercy, that you'd help them to do that right now. Help them to voice these things to you, Lord. That they would pray something like this right now. 
God, I admit that I'm a sinner. God, I know I've rebelled against you and I deserve punishment. But I also know, Lord, that you have loved me so much that you let Jesus come and voluntarily give his life in payment for my sins. And right now, God, I am placing my trust in you, in in your son, Jesus, and in Jesus alone for my salvation. And God, I ask you to come into my life and help me to live in a way that pleases you. In Christ's name, amen. While our heads are still bowed, just before this next song, let me just ask you, if you prayed that prayer, as far as you know, the first time, I would like to know that so we could pray for you. And so while our heads are bowed, if you just kind of raise your hand, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. Just kind of raise your hand. Let me see that. Put your hand back down just so I can pray for you. Just put your hand up. Thank you. Put your hand up so I can see it and then right back down. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Just put it up right down. I promise that I will pray for you. Anyone else? Thank you very much, Tim. Peterson.